Like many people my age, I've spent most of my adult life testing the waters, trying to find my dream job. That search has meant holding no less than a dozen different jobs in the 14 years since university. The employment market in Metro Vancouver is varied, and while a lot of focus is placed on jobs in the big industries, like film and television, real estate, and tourism, most people find work in other, lesser-known fields, or simply create their own niche. I sat down with four people, all working in different fields, to discuss the challenges of finding work in Metro Vancouver, and if there are some bright spots out there for the daily grind. Eighteen years ago, an enthusiastic young Vancouverite headed off to Toronto to make her childhood dream a reality. Following her passion, she has navigated through an industry that looks glamorous on the surface. But what about when you start pulling back the layers? Hi, I'm Nicole Bridger and I'm an ethical fashion designer here in Vancouver. I was born and raised in Vancouver and I've lived here almost my whole life. I think I've been interested in clothing design for as long as I can remember, but I didn't realize that I wanted to make a career out of it until I was a teenager. I learned to sew when I was 13, and then when I was 16, my first love's father is John Fluvog, and I saw there that I could do something that I love. So it was at 16, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to make clothes. I want to have my own stores. Now where do I go to learn that? <laughs> and I found out there was a university in Toronto that actually did a degree program. At Ryerson University, Nicole thrived, finding not only her path, but making a number of lifelong connections. In her third year, she was offered an opportunity that many young fashion designers only dream of an internship with Vivian Westwood, the iconic British designer. It was incredible to get to work with her because I'm not a fashionista and I was questioning whether I could hack it in the industry without selling my soul basically, not being myself. And she showed me that you can be whoever you are and still make it. And then I also saw her going through her second bankruptcy. And I thought, you know, here's this creative genius who can't make it. I need to learn business. So I went back to finish fourth year and did a, a minor in entrepreneurship. After spending four years living in creative design hubs like Toronto and London, England, what made her come home to a place not known for its fashion industry? You know, it's interesting People said, you know, why would you go back to Vancouver? You're in fashion design, Toronto's the place to be. But I just wasn't happy in Toronto. And I knew that I needed to come home and be back with the trees and the ocean <laughs> and family. Nicole was quite fortunate, finding work almost immediately after returning to Vancouver. She joined Lululemon, gaining the opportunity to learn more about running a business without having to take the risk on her own. I want to be able to design, but also know what's happening in accounting and, and sourcing and everything, marketing. And I ended up being there for two years and I created Okoko, which was a casual eco-wear line. And then after that, I was ready to start my own company. So that was in 2006, I started writing a business plan. 
and 2007 was our first collection. I think it is difficult. The industry is really small in Vancouver. I think I'm very fortunate being in the ethical realm that it is really collaborative and supportive. Around the time Nicole started writing her business plan, she found out she was pregnant. Along with the stress of starting her own business, her relationship with the father met a rough end. With so much going against her, I asked what it was that helped her persevere. When Raim was born, I think he was like a saving grace for me. And at that point, I had started my business in my parents' basement. We ended up living with my parents for six years, and they were incredible. I don't think I could have done it without them. So what's that like, starting a business with a baby? I remember when I first had my son that I did only work maybe one or two days a week. And my mom watched my son. And it wasn't until 2011 we opened the store. And at that time, my son was a year and a half. And I felt like I could now give to the business more. We have been on our own for just over a year now, and also completely financially independent too. I've been finally paying myself for the last two years. Being a small eco-fashion label, I was curious how she produced her line and if being local was important for her. I started locally initially because you can do smaller minimums, the lead time is quicker, and you're also able to build a relationship with the people. And so I ended up using one factory in particular for years, and then they wanted to retire. And the thought of the factory closing was more stressful to me than the thought of owning it. <laughs> How naive I was. So when I purchased the factory, they showed it to be profitable. And very quickly I saw that it wasn't. There was a lot of uh, things that weren't kept on the books. And through the help of one woman in particular who came in as a floor supervisor and she spoke Cantonese and Mandarin and Taiwanese and English and she was able to translate what the sewers were saying and what was actually happening. We transformed that floor to be one that worked really closely together as a team and they were happy to come to work. And I think I'm really proud of that, which made it even harder to close it. We were losing approximately 10 grand a month owning it. And after three years of that, I just didn't have anywhere else to go for money to keep fixing something that was broken. So in the end, we, we had to close it. And it was so hard to lay off 25 people and people that are living paycheck to paycheck that have earned your trust. And I think that's the hardest thing, is that you feel that you have failed these people that you asked for their trust. Now that I've closed it, it frees me up to start looking at ethical factories in developing countries which I'm really excited about. So, what did she learn from this experience? Right now, where we're at, now finally being profitable and climbing out of debt, I need to be okay with slow and steady growth on a stronger foundation. 
As a single mother throughout it all, I asked Nicole if her son, now nearly eight, has been a part of the growth of her business. When we used to do fashion shows, he would come to every fashion show. I'm, he's been to trade shows with me. I'm looking forward to taking him to India to some factories that we're using there. He loves to go to the store and sweep and windex the windows. The girls love it when he comes down and steal some coins from the cash register. <laughs> I think he feels proud. And I think to be able to show him that you can do it, you know, you can do anything that you put your mind to. After the success and recognition as a young ethical designer and the failure of having to close her factory, I wanted to know if Nicole was happy. I think happiness is kind of bullshit, actually, that we are, as a society, have this idea that we are seeking happiness. And the truth is that in life, there are times of great joy and there are times that are really hard. And I think that what is more important is to have a sense of contentment throughout the ups and downs of life. So am I happy? Yeah, I am happy. <laughs> Unless you've been living under a rock, it's impossible to live here and not recognize the explosion of craft beer that has been happening for the last several years. Craft brewing in the Lower Mainland seems to be ever-expanding, with new operations opening up what feels like every other week. Is it just a fad? Or are there genuine careers to be made from this tasty industry? I went out to an industrial park in Delta to meet with two brothers and see if making beer in a garage all day can become a real job. My name is Brent Mills and I am the brewmaster for Four Winds Brewing. And I'm Adam Mills, Brent's brother, the sales and marketing director here at Four Winds. We've been a tight family all along and uh, we kind of grew up in a family business and so the idea of working with family members has been a part of our lives ever since we were young. and. We've always got along really well and we have a great working relationship now and you know Brent's my younger brother but he's pretty much in charge here. Okay, so they're a tight family, but why beer? I was lucky enough to get a job at R&B Brewing and my whole time through working at R&B my dad was consistent on trying to bug me on opening a brewery with him. At the end of the three years I was somewhat convinced that him and I can open something and even still today, I don't know if, if we can do it, but we're doing it. So <laughs> yeah, it was Greg, my dad and I, who started Four Winds together. We rented this space and within a few weeks of our business plan taking action, we realized that we needed more help. So we asked Adam, who came full time with us. Our other brother, Sean, was a major part of it as well to get the place started. He's now working in production and yeah, that's where we are. I think there's seven, seven mills. Seven mills, members. yeah. Out of the, now we have, I think, 33 employees. Ask anyone and they'll tell you, naming anything is the worst. 
So I wanted to know how Adam and Brent came up with their catchy name. I was trying to think of brewery names and one that started really early was Four Winds and it has more to it than just a name for us, for the beer we brew. We we're very inspired by the many brewing regions of the world. So we, we like to say like the Four Winds, the South, East, North and West are blowing inspiration towards us. That's why we're called Four Winds. Brent started out as a chef with a passion for creating exciting flavors with food. But it wasn't until a fortuitous purchase when he realized the potential to do the same with beer. I got a book from Costco, of all places, called Beers of the World. And I think I was 20 years old. And it had, I think, 101 beers that were classified as the best 101 beers in the world. So I grabbed a bunch of bottles that were in the book, having no idea what they would taste like. And trying them one by one and just kind of exploring these crazy flavors that I didn't know existed uh, was a huge inspiration for sure for brewing. Adam remembers the inception story a little differently and as something that happened over some family bonding. Back when our dad, Greg, had retired from our previous family business, he eventually had a little shop in Steveston where Brent, myself, and our other brother, Sean, were all wound up building boats with Greg. So the four of us were in the shop, and I, to me, I remember that being a time when Greg and Brent started home brewing more and more and, you know, saying, hey, this is as good as anything I've tried. Like, so the idea kind of was fostered in that arena and in some sense, I think. And, yeah, yeah and we, ne we never did finish that boat. The city of Vancouver boasts nearly two dozen successful craft breweries. So why did Adam and Brent choose to set up shop in Delta in an industrial area that doesn't see much foot traffic? We decided to open up in Delta for the reason that it's our hometown and it's familiar territory. We feel like it helps differentiate us from all the Vancouver breweries, like we're kind of the Delta boys. Yeah, the other reason that we opened here, and well, it, it wasn't a reason at the time, but as we were opening, I, I was like severely anxious about our product and our quality. And so for us to be a little bit out of the city, it felt like there's a little bit less pressure. I don't think I'd be able to sleep if we were opening in Vancouver at the time. So what was that like, building a brewery from scratch with your family? Did they have any idea of what the place would become? We had a lot of fun building this place and we look back at that time and we were naive to the fact that we just didn't know what was coming and we had no idea what we were actually building, I think. I think going back to the original kind of business plan, we didn't really put too much planning weight or, or onus or expectations on the tasting room. We were more of a you know, brewery that was going to brew beer and then distribute. And we're pleasantly surprised with how much business our tasting room continues to do. Starting your own business is tough, no matter what industry you're in. I wanted to know if there's been anything that has made the process a little easier for Brent and Adam. There's definitely been a lot of support recently by the government for craft breweries because they do recognize the jobs that it creates. I don't know the exact statistic, but for every one employee at a macro brewery like Molson or Labatt, there's 20 employees at a craft brewery. So they've decided to give the small producers a break when it comes to taxation and sales, and it definitely helps. With all the local competition, how has business been for Four Winds? 
When we first started, we were relatively close to home. I mean, the majority of our sales is definitely in Vancouver still, but as the years go by, our reach broadens, but we're still just getting into the corners of this province just because we can barely keep up to the demand as it is locally, which is a really good problem to have. I think we want to make sure everyone in BC that wants our beer can get it before we go outside of our province. Exactly. In the last 12 months, Thanks to the expanding reach of their product in BC, the number of Four Winds employees has expanded from 15 to 33 people. So, is working at a craft brewery as fun as I think it is? Everyone is kind of committed to the, the success of this company and, and I think people are generally inspired because we're doing something that's a lot of fun and hard work at times, but at the end of the day it's beer and it kind of inspires a good time I think and, and you know people are happy to work here. Yeah, I think it's simply said like, if you don't love what you're doing, why are you doing it? Adam says that since opening three years ago, they're seeing great returns. So what's next? We're going to continue to grow, but we're not aiming to be some massive brewery. We want to keep our hands on the quality control and make sure that we do what we do and brew the best beer that we can possibly brew. I mean, on Sunday, I'm thinking about Monday right now. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking forward to going back to work. So it's, it's a lot of fun, for sure. There's not really a week that goes by where there's not something that's super exciting that doesn't get me kind of revved up to keep on going and, and do something new. So yeah, this is unreal, really. Of all the industries in Metro Vancouver, the one that has seen the fastest and most impactful growth is tech. In fact, in 2006, the number of tech jobs in BC surpassed those in natural resources, including forestry, mining, and oil and gas, and in 2009 became the biggest contributor to our provincial economy. It's known as one of the highest pressure jobs with long hours and tight deadlines. It also has the reputation of not being the most inclusive industry. I had the opportunity to discuss what it's actually like behind the scenes at a local gaming company. I am Sharon Price. I am a senior project manager for Demonware. Demonware is a company that provides online backend services for Activision's top IPs. There is an amazing game development scene going on here, not only still in AAA, but also in the indie game development scene. Sharon, originally from South Africa, recently moved to Vancouver from Montreal, changing not only the scenery, but also her role in the industry, and for good reason. My role at Bioware was more on the content side of creating games, on that production side, but the games industry can be fairly volatile. So for me, joining the company that I have now, I'm sort of future-proofing my career going forward because it's still software development. So if, for whatever reason, the games industry imploded tomorrow, I could still take my skills and my career and, and move on and still stay within software development because there will always be a need for that. In her younger years, Sharon worked as a hairstylist. That seemed like a strange transition to me so I asked how she got started in game development. 
So I kind of fell into games. It was never a, a choice. It wasn't something that I kind of always wanted to do, which is strange because our industry is so aspirational. There are so many people that just want to be in games. And I feel like I'm quite privileged in that I fell into it. And surprisingly enough, best decision I ever made. There's so much aspiration in the games industry. But if what I've seen in the movies and on TV is true, it's far from glamorous, right? There is definitely a crunch culture still in our industry, which is something that studios are now actively taking steps towards diminishing on their project timelines. And it generally comes down to better planning, making sure that we have a feature list that is actually doable by the team. There has also always been a misconception that to be good at what you do, especially in the games industry, you have to work 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week because if you're not, if you're leaving at 5 p.m. every day, you don't love what you do. The life-work balance is definitely taken into account way more here than anywhere else I've ever worked, which is fantastic. It's still something that I'm actively trying to get used to. Originally, if I tried to picture a game developer, I'd imagine a young male, maybe a little nerdy, who has played role-playing games all his life. Meeting Sharon has changed that image, but has being a woman affected her experiences in the industry? Being a woman has definitely been a challenge, especially early on in my career. I think I had to work twice as hard as anybody else in my role to prove myself. I'm production-based, so a lot of it is leading a team and working on schedules and making sure that we're hitting deadlines. And if I approach the team and try to sort of get them to lock into a date, they wouldn't take me as seriously. But over the years, I've learned how to deal with that and I've obviously gained experience and I have a lot of tricks up my sleeve now that I can use, which makes it a lot easier. But it's still challenging I mean, even now, 11 years in, I still have some guys in my industry who still feel that I shouldn't be there. So there, there is still a lot of misogyny that goes on. There's a lot of mansplaining. A lot of the men that I work with don't even realize that they're doing this. Silly things like being asked for my opinion and then halfway through being interrupted. You know, it's those little challenges that after a while build up and... It's great to have that community that you can go and vent about those situations to, but also just say, you know, meeting other women who've had exactly, or other minority groups who've had exactly the same experience, and knowing that you're not alone in this is a big thing. Finding people in your industry who look like you goes a long way to making you feel like you belong. For Sharon, it's not just about meeting those people, it's also about being that support for others. I'm part of a group called Women in Games International, and that's a fantastic support system for minorities. Wiggy in particular meets up sort of every couple of months, and generally it'll be a networking event where you get to meet other women in the industry, but we also do things like we'll have panel discussions where we'll talk about certain things that are prevalent to the industry. We'll do demo nights so people can bring their games and showcase them and get feedback. We'll do events where we'll bring a speaker in to talk about a particular subject or topic. Their support has been phenomenal. If long hours, high stress, and the potential challenges for women and minorities aren't enough to turn someone away, what does Sharon recommend for people who want to start their own career in tech? For anybody trying to get into the industry, I would say 
decide what it is you want to do. Come to the meetups that are all over Vancouver. No matter what you do, you will find a meetup and introduce yourself. People are incredibly welcoming and open and they will help you out. Do your homework. Don't give up. If it's really something that you want to do, just persevere and keep going. I'm still here 11 years later, so I still love what I do. I still love the people that I work with. And for every horror story that I could tell you, there are five that are fantastic and will touch your heart and make you, you know, feel that we've, as an industry, we've had an impact on people's lives. And that's what keeps me coming back day after day. The workforce in the Lower Mainland is changing, shifting from a more traditional market to one that is fostering entrepreneurship and expanding new and exciting industries. The future of our kids will look very different from that of our parents, and it seems like employment in the region is adapting to meet those changes. Finding a job that inspires passion and excitement isn't always the easiest or most direct path. And even for those people who do find the perfect career, they're always filled with moments of struggle, self-doubt, and the potential for failure. In speaking with Nicole, Adam, Brent, and Sharon, one thing is very clear. If you know what will make you want to get up and go to work every day, then hold on to that throughout the rough patches. The rewards can exceed your expectations. My own determination has led me to creating a successful communications business with my husband and business partner, as well as some exciting opportunities with local companies who share our passion for building vibrant urban communities. It's nice to know I live in a place that makes it possible to spend my days doing what I love. The Straight and Narrows is a collaboration by Modacity and is written and produced by Chris Bruntlett and myself, Melissa Bruntlett. A very big thanks to Christophe Prevo, our sound engineer and editor, Todd LeBlanc, our marketing director, David Fu, and our music supervisor, Gina Less. This episode has featured music by The Lunas. I thought these days would never change. It seems to me that I'm the one to play. So hard to pave your way No end in sight, no promises are made
Where are we going?